0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from The Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. We're one week into the UK election campaign, and things took a surprising twist on Monday, when Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit Party, went from this... We will contest every single seat in England, Scotland and Wales. To this... The Brexit
1: Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election.
0: Will Farage's U-turn ensure that Boris Johnson secures the majority he needs to take the UK out of the EU under the deal he negotiated last month? That's one of the questions I'll be asking our London editor, Dennis Staunton, when he joins me shortly from the north of England. But first this week, we're looking at the outcome of another election, in this case in Spain, where the Socialist Party of Acting Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez emerged as the nominal winner of Sunday's poll. I say nominal because, while the socialists did win the most seats, the real success story of this election was the performance of the far-right Vox party. In a matter of months, Vox has gone from being a fringe party operating on the margins of Spanish politics to becoming the third-largest party in the Cortes, the Spanish Parliament. In Spain's previous general election in April – that's right, they do like an election in Spain – Vox caused shockwaves by taking 24 seats in the 350-seat chamber, making it the first far-right party to enter Spain's parliament since the death of the dictator Francisco Franco in 1975. But it seems Vox was only starting in April because this time it has more than doubled its tally of seats to 52. Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Madrid, joins me now. Guy, the leader of Vox, Santiago Abascal, described this result as the quickest and the most brilliant accomplishment in the history of Spanish democracy. This may not be an idle boast.
2: Well, no, that's right. I mean, it really was an extraordinary result. Um, You you mentioned that result uh, for Vox back in the April election, which um, was um, it it made quite an impact um, in that, that election by getting those 24 seats. But in terms of numbers, they didn't have a huge presence in Congress. And what they've done with this last election, is they've more than doubled their presence there. They've overtaken two other parties, that's Podemos and Ciudadanos, and they've become the third political force in Spain. And they're not that far behind the Conservative Popular Party, Um, who have 35 or so seats more than them. But the fact they've got these 52 seats now gives them a a, a relatively large platform um, from which to, to... that they can they can preach their their agenda their far right agenda so it really is um, a major result for them and a major change on the political right for Spain.
0: Tell us about the origins of Vox. And how long has the party been around and where did where did it come from? Well,
2: the, the party has been around since 2014, um, and it, it was founded by. Uh, politicians who were had previously been in the, the Conservative Popular Party and they'd become disenchanted with the Popular Party, which is a, a sort of seen as a conservative centre-right party. But they were unhappy at the direction that party had been drifting uh, for several years. They felt that the, the Popular Party and the whole of Spanish politics had sort of moved uh towards the left or towards the center in the case of the popular party and everything had shifted to the left and they felt therefore that there was no room for people um, with certain political convictions further to the right you could say far right um and they felt they felt that they were unrepresented so they founded vox uh, with the idea to give a voice to people the right of the popular party now for quite a long time they really weren't taken very seriously at all um, because as they have acknowledged, you know they they really had very little institutional success in terms of getting into Spain's institutions until really last year. So for a long time, they were just seen as this sort of fringe, anti-immigrant, anti-Islamic party, um, which had no influence really on, on mainstream politics. And it was only really at last year um, as the, the Catalan issue really started to heat up um, or had been had been inflamed for some time, but it was really um, making itself felt in sort of the public consciousness. And also the issue of illegal immigration. They've been campaigning on that a lot. The numbers of arrivals um, hit uh, something of a peak last year. That brought them into uh, the public eye much more. And they were able to score a big win down in Andalusia in the regional election back in December of last year. Um, They won 12 seats there in December, and that really put them on the map. And that really gave them momentum, which has carried them through into this election.
0: It's routinely described as a far-right party, but of course, far-right can mean many different things. What does it mean in the case of Vox?
2: Well, with with Vox, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not they're far-right, or are they populist, or are they simply nationalist? And I think in their case, calling them far-right is really quite accurate because they are on the far right of the spectrum in Spain. The policies that they are interested in, the issues that they're interested in are issues which tend to be ones of interest to parties on the far right. Illegal immigration, they um, campaign against feminism, against LGBT uh, rights or legislation uh, to promote LGBT rights and feminism. Um, And the other issue that they are Sort of obsessed with is the territorial one to do with Catalonia, but I mean I think it is it is perfectly legitimate to call them a far right party. They they tend to represent, or many of their voters tend to be sort of middle class, middle aged people, not necessarily people who are marginalised economically. It's more a case of people who feel that they haven't been able to express their political views. Um, in the the current climate. They haven't been able to express their political views through other parties. So those are their core
0: voters. I mean, Spain has a justified reputation as one of the most liberal democracies really in in Europe. I think it was one of the first countries to legalise same-sex marriage and so on. So does Mm. this kind of support suggest there was always a sort of latent opposition within Spain uh, to, to these kind of progressive developments?
2: Well, that, that's certainly what Vox uh, believes. And this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, they had this idea that the whole sort of center of gravity of politics in Spain shifted to the left. Because although, for example, the Popular Party, when same-sex marriage was was legalized back in uh, the sort of middle of the last decade, uh, the Popular Party put up some resistance to that, but uh, eventually kind of came around to the idea that it was a good thing, Um and, you know, the same with uh, with other similar issues. There, there, there was very much a, a national consensus on improving uh, protection for, for women from uh, gender violence. Um, the Popular Party was part of that consensus. Um, so Vox seemed to feel that, you know, even the political right was part of a kind of progressive, slightly liberal, left-leaning consensus on this, these issues. And yet it felt that there were many... Spaniards out there who didn't agree with these things, and it was seen as politically incorrect for, to, to voice any opposition uh, to to such policies. So Vox is saying it's giving a voice to those people who didn't have a voice, um, who felt rather sort of cowed by the um, the cultural climate that Spain has seen in recent years, and they've really focused on that and saying that's what they're doing. They're giving a voice to these people.
0: But how do you explain, then, Guy, the, the sort of really very dramatic rise of this party in such a short period of time. Is it the issues you you alluded to there a few moments ago? Is it the Catalan crisis or is it immigration or are there other factors involved as well?
2: Well, I think the immigration issue um, has been important for them. Um, you know, they have talked about illegal immigration a lot. Again, it's something that the, the popular party sometimes talks about, you know, as being a major problem for Spain, but often it doesn't. I mean, during the recent election campaign, the popular party really didn't talk much about immigration. So Vox, you know, has been sort of really the only party talking about that a lot. Um, so, it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily an issue that worries, um, you know, a huge number of Spaniards. But for Spaniards, for example, down in Andalusia, who which is the, the region which receives the most uh, migrants from Africa coming on those boats um, from Morocco, for example, you know, those are the Spaniards who are most affected um, by the arrival of migrants, who see the, the migrants arriving. A more important issue for them has been the territorial one. I think This very tough line they've taken against the Catalan independence movement is what has benefited them electorally above all else. Now, all the parties on the right, the um, the Popular Party and Ciudadanos as well, have taken hard lines um, on the Catalan issue. But it's always Vox that takes the hardest line. For example, we had that um, court case against 12 catalan independence leaders earlier this year now uh, vox was one of the the parties in that court case it was a plaintiff bringing a case um against uh, several of the defendants for rebellion um it ultimately wasn't successful in their case but they were able to show that they were doing something concrete against these catalan leaders um, and you know, more recently, they were calling for a, for a, um, a state of emergency to be, to be declared in Catalonia. Now, the, the other parties on the right were making other calls for the, the, the Spanish government to intervene in Catalonia, but they were never calling for a, for a state of emergency. So it's always Vox that, that's giving the sort of the, taking the hardest line on that issue, um, and that seems to be what many Spaniards um, have wanted.
0: And it's not just Catalonia is a guy, am I right? I mean, Vox is, really wants to see a more centralised Spain. Does, does that mean it would like it would seek to reduce the autonomy of other uh, autonomous regions in Spain as well, if it had the opportunity?
2: Yes, I mean, I think you could argue that, that perhaps the most radical policy that, that Vox um, has been advocating has been to rein in many of these devolved powers to these cent- uh, 17 uh, regions around Spain, uh, you know, one of which is Catalonia, but there are 16 others and they all have varying degrees of power. Um, so whether it's, you know, they all have regional parliaments, but um, they also have control over you know local cultural policy, healthcare, education, and so on. Um, and Vox is calling for many of those powers to be reined in. It's calling essentially for a re-centralization um, of Spain. Um, so you know, as as far as the the Catalan debate goes, that is, I suppose, the toughest line you could possibly take. Not just to uh, re-centralise or rein in the powers of Catalonia, but to rein in the powers of all the regions around the country and make it more of a centralised state. Um, and many voters seem to to go along with that.
0: Tell us something about their leader, guy Santiago Abascal. Is he um, a charismatic character? Is he kind of personally popular?
2: Well, Abascal, is, um, he's from the Basque country. He's 43 years old. He, As I mentioned before, he was uh, previously in the Popular Party. Um, and coming from the Basque country, um, I think that is to a certain extent relevant because he can sort of draw on the experience of being a unionist conservative from the Basque country. And he was there at a time when ETA was still active, when um, you know, colleagues of his were being threatened by the separatists of, of uh, ETA. Um, when you know, it was it was quite it wasn't life wasn't easy if you were a unionist, but particularly a unionist conservative. Um, so I think that has sort of helped his appeal. Um, he's not a tremendously charismatic um, character, but you know, for example, in the um, the one leaders uh, party leaders debate that we had that was televised ahead of this election. Many people felt that he came out the winner, um, and you know he's not necessarily a, a brilliant speaker, but he was very well drilled, um, very well prepared, and he seemed to perform well on the night. Um, and you know, I, I, I think to a certain extent he's got a, there's there's a certain amount of political space around him that he can uh, make the most of, and he knows that, um, and he, he seems to be. Um, a politician who has managed to win over uh, many of those those voters on the right um, over the last year or so.
0: Now, guys, Spain, of course, is by no means unique in witnessing the rise of, of a far-right party, but the emergence of Vox does have a particular resonance in Spain where the memory of the Franco dictatorship is still strong. And you you uh, reported last month on the exhumation of Franco's body from the, the Valley of the Fall and this big monument near Madrid and its removal to a regular cemetery for, for reburial, and it was a very divisive issue going into the election campaign. Does the strong performance of Vox, you know, suggest that perhaps even it may have benefited more from this controversy than Pedro Sanchez did, or, or is that reading too much into it? Well, I mean, it's impossible to tell, but there was certainly a feeling that the
2: fact that this exhumation, which took place on October the 24th, you know, less than a month before the election... Is it's very likely that it mobilised voters on on the far right um, because it is such a divisive issue, um, and I think for many of those voters, you know, this was yet another example of of you know this leftist Spain trying to dominate the agenda and trying to um, you know dominate um, even the way that history is portrayed. Because the whole idea behind the exhumation of Franco was you know that this dictator shouldn't be buried there because because he was essentially, you know, a a, a bad thing for Spain um, and he shouldn't be glorified. So let's move him somewhere much more low key. Um, Now, Vox took, again, as you would expect, a hard line on that, the hardest line of all the parties and said, you know, this was a profanation of of, of somebody's tomb. It shouldn't go ahead. It shouldn't happen. Uh, They didn't sort of go as far as expressing outright support for Franco, but that was kind of implicit. And I think, you know, a lot of those voters who, I mean, there weren't, there weren't thousands of them, but there were a number of, vo- of, of uh, hard-right Spaniards who turned out um, on the day of the exhumation at the, the cemetery to where Franco was, was moved, where he was reburied, and they were doing the Franco-fascist salutes, they were singing Francoist songs. España, viva! Viva Franco! viva! I, I, would, I would assume that most of them would have voted for Vox.
0: Finally, a guy um, we mentioned there, Pedro Sanchez, the acting Prime Minister. He, he's emerged from this election weaker than he was going into it. Um, his, his options really seem to have narrowed compared to where he, things were at in April. But there have been developments, I think, today, haven't there?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, we just heard that Pedro Sanchez has signed a preliminary deal with Podemos. Um, the Podemos leader Pablo Iglesias. Now it's very vague at the moment, um, but that is seen as significant because the big problem that uh, Pedro Sanchez had um, in the wake of April's election, and the reason that we had to have a, a repeat election on Sunday, was basically because these two parties could not agree on the uh, the formation of a new a new government, and they could not agree specifically on what shape. Um, that government should have, whether it should be a coalition or just a governing partnership, um, and how many seats—if uh, it, if it was a, a coalition—how many uh, seats in the around the cabinet table uh, Podemos should have, and, and so on. This agreement simply says that they will discuss all of that after an investiture session um, in which Pedro Sanchez tries to, uh, to to form a new government, which would probably happen in a few weeks' time.
0: Okay. Well we'll see what develops it would be nice if we didn't uh, have to come back in another month or two to talk about a Spanish election I guess Guy thanks for that thanks very much Chris pleasure
1: you're listening to the Irish Times
2: you know consulting firms are like onions layer after layer after layer after layer you just don't get the answer or the person you need you just get irritation ugh Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit, Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go.
0: Thanks again to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. It's to an election closer to home now. We're a week into the UK election campaign. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is covering that for us and he joins me now from Hartlepool in the north of England. Dennis, let's talk first about Nigel Farage, A few days ago, he was telling us that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is so bad, it's not even Brexit. He was too busy to run in the election himself because he would be supporting Brexit Party candidates in every constituency in the country. Now, suddenly, Boris Johnson's approach to Brexit is exactly the right one. And the Brexit Party is pulling out of every constituency where the Tory party has a sitting MP. What brought about this dramatic change?
1: Well, I think there were a few factors. One was that uh, there was a lot of pressure from uh, Brexiteers generally and Brexit Party donors in particular on Nigel Farage to not stand in the way of Boris Johnson getting a majority. And in particular, the idea that uh, you were going to have a Brexit Party candidate threatening sitting Conservative MPs, including many Brexiteers, there was a particular sort of lot of pressure on him to avoid doing. And the second thing was that that there appear to have been some back-channel negotiations between the Brexit Party and the European Research Group of Conservative Brexiteers, where they were basically trying to give Nigel Farage some kind of a tree to climb down. And uh, so what, uh, what this, the form this took was a video message that Boris Johnson put out on uh, Sunday night.
2: Hi, folks. I'm out and about campaigning a lot at the moment. And people ask me about the deal that we've done with our EU friends and partners and what kind of future relationship
1: where he said that uh, he was going to go for uh, a, a straightforward free trade agreement kind of canada plus arrangement with the european union and he also ruled out extending the transition period after brexit beyond december 2020
2: look at how quickly we got a new withdrawal agreement done it took us less than three months uh, we can get a fantastic uh, new a free trade agreement with the EU uh, by the end of 2020. And we will not extend the transition period beyond the end of 2020. There's absolutely no need to.
1: And so Nigel Farage seized on this uh, here in Hartlepool uh, yesterday on Monday. And he said that this made it clear that although Boris Johnson's deal was something that he wasn't entirely happy with, that this was closer to something that he could recognize as Brexit. And so he said that the, the Brexit party wouldn't uh, put up candidates in the uh, 317 seats the Tories won last time. Uh, because he didn't want to get in the way of uh, of Boris Johnson delivering Brexit, and so he didn't want to deliver a hung parliament that might put in dozens of Liberal Democrats, By stopping the fanatics in the Liberal Democrats who'd sign us up for everything, wouldn't they? United States of Europe, European Army, you name it. I mean, they even want to revoke the
0: result of the referendum.
1: And so this was his justification for doing this kind of uh, sort of partial retreat from the campaign.
0: If Farage now says that Johnson is getting it right about Brexit and is on a path to deliver a somewhat acceptable Brexit, um, why is the Brexit party standing at all? I mean, wouldn't the logical follow-on from yesterday's announcement be that it should get out of the way altogether and let the Tories get on with it?
1: Yeah, and I think that's uh, a a big problem. That, indeed, is what the Conservatives are saying. They're saying, you know, if uh, you don't want to stand in our way, then get out of our way and don't just get out of our way in the south of England, but also get out of our way in those marginal seats, that we need to take from Labour if uh, if Boris Johnson is to get a majority, because it is really hard to say, uh, you know, hard to argue in the you know in the south of England that uh, you uh, basically need to vote Conservative to deliver Brexit, and say something different in the north of England. But for now, what Nigel Farage is saying is that actually the Conservatives should withdraw from some of these marginal seats. Uh, held by Labour uh, up in places like this in the northeast of England, and uh, and so for now he's not retreating any further. But I think that one of the effects of what he did is probably going to be that it's going to undermine the Brexit Party's message and probably uh, reduce their support uh, in places like this in the northeast.
0: I don't know if the seagulls we heard there, Dennis, were were dissenting from your view there or not. But what what impact do you think then Farage's U-turn will have on the election campaign in general?
1: It will have two effects. One is that it's certainly going to help the Conservatives in places where they're defending small majorities from, say, the Liberal Democrats. And what they were having to do until now is to look over their shoulder at the Brexit Party in case Conservative supporters might start voting in some numbers for the Brexit Party and so that would reduce the margin even further and so what so it, so what they'll find now in places like say the south west of england uh, places like devon and cornwall which voted heavily to leave but are actually traditional liberal democrat strongholds i think that some of those Tory MPs and candidates will sleep easier in their beds uh, uh, because of what Nigel Farage did. And I think then uh, it it will probably also limit the Brexit Party's appeal uh, in uh, Labour-held seats in the north of England and the Midlands. Uh, the impact of that is not entirely clear because, uh, you know, there's some dispute really and uh, essentially we don't know really uh, how the Brexit Party vote was going to affect some of these tight races because most of the Brexit Party support tends to come from former Conservatives. But the question is, if you split the, uh, the Leave vote, uh, exactly who, do you, uh, you know, who does it benefit? Does it actually benefit Labour? Or are you actually taking away some uh, Labour voters who would not be able to vote for the Conservatives, but feel as if they can vote for the Brexit party? So I think it, it certainly will have some impact uh, in races, uh, in the in contests in the north of England, in the Midlands, but it's not entirely clear how. But I think the main impact is going to be that it's going to diminish uh, the significance of the Brexit party as a force in this election.
0: When we spoke on the podcast last week, Dennis, the Conservative Party had got off to an unimaginably bad start with calamities coming almost by the hour. There was Jacob Rees-Mogg suggesting that the Grenfell Tower fire victims lacked common sense. There was a doctored video that gave the false impression that Keir Starmer was an, unable to answer a question about Brexit. The Welsh Secretary resigned in a controversy about a, a rape trial involving a, a former aide. I'm, I'm not even sure I'm remembering all of it, but have things settled down now for the Tories? Have they sort of taken back control of their own campaign?
1: yes things have certainly settled down it's uh, you know they seem to have got the wobble in uh, not in the middle of the campaign but before it even began and so in that sense really once the campaign proper began last week they things have gone uh, a bit better for them and labor has had uh, one or two uh, you know problems of its own uh, in terms of internal stuff and what the and so the, the tories have been a bit more on message uh, you know for the last few days there is a bit of a uh, of trouble brewing over uh, the rather slow response of the government to some uh, flooding uh, here in the north of England, and uh, Labour demanded yesterday that uh, that uh, Boris Johnson should convene this emergency, so-called Cobra uh, uh, meeting uh, to deal with the flooding, which Boris Johnson then did um, a, a couple of hours later. But uh, Jeremy Corbyn today has been uh, suggesting actually, if these floods had been happening in Surrey, that uh, the government would have been quicker off the mark. And so there are, uh, you know, mishaps, uh, you know, and, and certainly potential for trouble along the way. And what you've been seeing in, the, in terms of the polls is that Labour has been increasing its support over the last few days and uh, so one poll put them above 30 percent for the first time in a long time but you've also seen the Conservatives edging upwards Uh, and so what seems to be happening is that uh, the uh, Brexit party and the Liberal Democrats are being squeezed to some extent so this is starting to look a bit more like a conventional race between uh, Labour and the Conservatives a little bit more at least than it had to be until now.
0: And Dennis, you're reporting today from the constituencies of Bishop Auckland, S- Sedgefield, and Hartlepool, where you are now. Tell us something about those constituencies, what the issues are, and, and what are people in the area telling you?
1: Well, uh, one of the most marginal constituencies in the country is Bishop Auckland. And these uh, constituencies, they're all in County Durham in the northeast uh, of, of England. And uh, Bishop Auckland is held by Helen Goodman who uh, has a majority of 502. And so if the Conservatives don't win Bishop Auckland, then it's very unlikely that they're going to have a majority next time round. And I met uh, Helen Goodman this morning. She said that uh, the Labour campaign is better organised this time than it was in 2017, but she acknowledged that uh, there is quite a bit of pushback. Partly it's about Brexit, and this is true of all three constituencies. They all voted to leave the European Union, and yet they're all uh, represented by MPs who either voted Remain, in fact, in all cases they campaigned to Remain, and, and they're also uh, following the Labour policy, which is to have a second referendum. And so there's quite a lot of pushback on that. And then the other difficulty that Labour has in places like this is Jeremy Corbyn, who is simply a politician uh, of type that just doesn't go down terribly well here. There's uh, you know quite a big sort of military... Uh, Community here, an awful lot of military veterans and their families. There's a kind of a traditional sort of patriotism that goes with that, so they don't like Jeremy Corbyn in terms of his foreign policy and his attitude to uh, to that kind of thing. And they also just feel as if he's, you know, a kind of uh, a North London intellectual, as one of the Labour activists put it to me the other day. That just uh, he simply doesn't go down very well on the doorsteps. So I asked uh, Helen Goodman what she said to people when they uh, brought up. Uh, the issue of Jeremy Corbyn, and she said, I'm not asking you to vote for him, I'm asking you to vote for me. And so th- th- they all have an answer similar to that, but you don't find many of them uh, really trying to defend him. I think what uh, what they're hoping for, uh, the Labour uh, MPs here and the candidates were are all under pressure in one way or another, what they're hoping is that the traditional reluctance in these former uh, mining areas to vote for the Conservatives, that, that, will, that that's actually still strong enough to to carry Labour through. But if there is a big swing against Labour and towards the Conservatives, then Bishop Auckland and possibly one or two of the others could go. And in the case of Hartlepool, the biggest threat, uh, at least until this week, was from the Brexit Party because uh, you've seen a lot of uh, traditional Labour voters uh, who have uh, rallied to the Brexit Party banner. And this is a constituency that in 2015 UKIP came second they came within a few thousand votes of uh, of winning the seat from Labour and so it's uh, and you actually also have uh, right now the Brexit party in control of the local council a number of independent councillors turned Brexit party and they've joined forces with the Conservatives to take over the council here so this is one of the very few seats where uh, the Brexit party actually could have a chance of winning and they've put up their chairman Richard Tice as the candidate here
0: And and just finally, Dennis, you mentioned there uh, the unpopularity, at least with some voters of Jeremy Corbyn. What about the Boris Johnson factor? I mean, if people are reluctant to switch their vote to the Tories, does he make them even more reluctant? or, Or do people, you know, kind of like him and like what he has to say about Brexit?
1: Well, I, I've actually met quite a number of people here who say they like him. They think he's funny, and they uh, they think he's kind of you know quite positive. Uh, what one of the Labour people here said to me is that he's not actually disliked, and that uh, but but he hasn't maybe had long enough to establish himself as Prime Minister. And so uh, although uh, Boris Johnson is not, I think, uh, a negative factor for the Conservatives here, he's not quite enough. To persuade uh, you know uh, uh, you know all of those waivers to go all the way over towards voting for the Conservatives. But having said that, I mean I think you know in a campaign of five weeks there is a chance that uh, that uh, the the relative popularity of Boris Johnson uh, over Jeremy Corbyn and this is really very relative because both of them are net unpopular in the you know in the in the ratings. That uh, that that could be a factor. In terms of pushing these seats over, but it's uh, you know it's still obviously very early days, and certainly on the basis of what what I've been hearing here for the last few days, it's still in all of these constituencies, it's still really all to play for.
0: Okay, Dennis. Well, it's four weeks to polling day from Thursday. I know that we'll be talking to you several times between now and then. Thanks for joining us today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to IrishTimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.